Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. It's Saturday, November 1st, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Chantelle Alkuri. First up, we're, ch- we're chatting about COVID QR codes and where your data goes every time you scan them with Dr. Sasha Malatoris from UTS Centre for Media Transition. After that, we talk about what it means to be a drag king in 2020 with Sydney performer Gabriel Angel. But as always, we want to hear from you. Do you care if anything happens to your COVID sign-in details? Personally, I don't really care. What about you, Shami? I oh, like. I feel like I should care. Like everyone tells me, I should care. And this should be important. But I, I feel like the government knows everything about me anyway. You know. Exactly. We want to know what your thoughts are. You can text us in on oh four oh nine nine four five nine four five, or you can tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Okay, Chantel, my dear. Yes. You know my name is crazy, crazy long. It is. For listeners out there, my name's actually Shambhavi Sivasubramanian. So it's it's a lot of letters out there. Um, so I am very, very, very grateful that there's this autofill function on all those COVID QR code forms that I have to fill out every time I go to a cafe or to a bar. But how secure is our data when we give it away, even if it is under these public health orders? Earlier this week, the Berejiklian government announced QR codes will be mandatory in hospital venues later this month, while also pushing for three million people to use their own state barcode software. Here to explain whether your contact information is COVID safe is Dr. Sasha Malatoris from the UTS Centre for Media Transition. Sasha, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, Shami. Hi. Uh, in Tassie, a, a venue was accused of using contact details from COVID check-ins to send out promotional material. Was that breaking the law? Yeah, well, let me throw it back to you. Should it, do you think it should be? Does it sound fine to you or, or not okay? That's no. always a good first test. Yeah, well, uh, to me, it's like uh, looking at the law, it's kind of not really that clear. And the bottom line here is that Australian privacy law isn't good enough. Uh, it hasn't kept up with digital the digital economy. And so I'd say here, look, it's probably uh, uh, in breach of the Privacy Act. So generally, your personal information can be used for direct marketing if you gave your details directly to an organisation and it's reasonable to expect that organisation to use your information. Um, so, you know, th- does that cover this case? It doesn't. It seems in this case there is a breach of the Privacy Act, but the Privacy Act only applies to companies that are bigger, that have a turnover of more than $3 million a year. So if it's a small venue, it probably doesn't apply at all. So my co-host Chantel was just telling me before the show how the New South Wales Premier has said that from November 23rd, all hospital businesses will have to offer a QR code for COVID check-ins. Um, do you have concerns about that and what might happen to our info if that information is shared? Yeah, I, I do. Look, I, I think um, with the QR codes, there are some real worries because we're kind of looking at this government slash private area. A lot of the, the com- there are companies, private companies that are running uh, QR businesses for these um, purposes. And what are these companies doing with the data? How securely are they keeping it? What else are they doing with the data? There's a whole kind of, um, you know, there, there are a lot of unknowns here. And an academic colleague of mine tried to find out, you know, he looked up 
he found the name of the one of the companies running this QR system. He tried to contact them and said, what are you doing with my data? What, what are you using this QR code for? And they just got straight back to him and said, look, we're not allowed to tell you that for confidentiality reasons. So a mm-hmm. bit of an irony there. Um, but yeah, look, there, there are concerns. There aren't um, the protections in place for these QR codes. And, and I'd say that, you know, a general tip, if you do care about your personal data being used in a way that's ethical and lawful, use the pen and paper. So say a check-in web service mishandles our information or mines mm. our data, is the HOSPO venue then liable in any way? Oh, is it liable? Probably not. It depends. I mean, we'd need to go into more, some more uh, specifics there. But look, I, I guess I'd go back to that bottom line about um, this being pretty unknown territory and um, the privacy law of Australia not covering a lot of situations that it should cover. And in, in fact, what happened just over a week ago is that the Attorney General, the Federal Attorney General, just announced a review of the Privacy Act and privacy law. So that's happening at the moment, and it's something that's come out of uh, the ACCC, the Competition and Consumer Commission's inquiry into the impact of digital platforms, which, has been, which was concluded last year but has been going on over the past couple of years. So um, uh, businesses are allowed to use third-party tools like Google Forms, um, uh, but should we be trusting big tech more or less than small providers? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly the issue, isn't it? So what happens, um, yeah, an early phrase that an academic used a while ago to describe um, data in a digital environment is that it's greased data, you know, and that kind of understates what's going on. Digital data just flows so easily, right? And And that's, that's the issue that, um, you know, once uh, our data is digital and out there, it can be shared so easily and its uses are often hidden uh, and not transparent. They're not transparent at all um, and they're unpredictable. So, you know, Google, do we trust Google? I guess um, people are different. You know, my at the Centre for Media Transition, we recently had focus groups on, on these sorts of issues and people divided pretty e- evenly into half-trusted uh, companies like Google more than the government, and the other half were the opposite, you know, trusted government more than companies like Google. Certainly the ACCC is taking some legal action against Google for allegedly um, breaching, you know, misleading and deceiving people in terms of its data collection practices. So we'll see how that goes. So you just mentioned earlier, Sasha, how if we really want to protect our data, we should just use pen and paper. But I don't know, to me, that sounds, <laughs> if not... Like kind of worse. So, can you unpack that for me? Sure. Well, if you're using pen and paper, it's just the, the obligation is actually on the venue to digitise um, the information it collects. So, even if you you use a pen and paper, it's meant to then the venue has an obligation to create it uh, to transfer that into a digital format and keep a digital record. Um, yeah, but the, the the issue with privacy is with QR codes and the kind of the the way that that QR code can reveal you and data about you to to private companies. And, you know, there's not a great deal of oversight or control into how that data is then being being further used, you know. You, we we talk, talked earlier about direct marketing and so on. You know, what, what's going on here? Is that data being on-sold some, in some way that we don't know about and that we wouldn't want to be happening if we did know about it? Um, with a pen and paper, it's just uh, it's less easy for that information to be misused. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Sasha Molitoris on COVID check-ins and data privacy. So, Sasha, Backchat was told by the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner that businesses must delete personal information after it's no longer necessary for contact tracing. 
Do you think that businesses are actually doing this? <laughs> well, I would hope so. But, uh, you know, I imagine there's a lot who aren't. One of the, one of the issues here is that, you know, privacy law in a, in a digital age, there, there are quite a few responsibilities that companies have. It's pretty tough keeping up with those responsibilities and um, implementing them. So we, we need to make sure that we don't overburden businesses. Um, so we need to keep it sort of simple uh, and uh, so that the important stuff gets done. But I think, you know, that's an important one. They need to set up systems that the data is collected and then um, deleted at the appropriate time. So while there were initial privacy concerns about the COVID Safe app, the legislation mm. that came with it has been praised by academics as the gold standard. So what did they get right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what we're talking about here, right, is that, that, that we're giving up some of our personal details in order um, that we that we combat this pandemic. And that's that's hugely important, right? So that's the bottom line. Um, so, you know, that's the whole rationale for the QR codes, the venue check-ins, and the COVID Safe app. And with the COVID Safe app, we can all argue about its effectiveness, right? They haven't... It's, it's been pretty ineffective by, by all measures. It's had about six or seven million downloads now, and only about 17 cases uh, contacting New South Wales um, that have been that may have been otherwise unknown. So it's been pretty ineffective. But you know, what was really positive about the COVID Safe app, in my view, is that the legislation that went with it is really good in privacy terms. It just gets it right, and the way it does that is it it makes it illegal to discriminate against people who haven't downloaded the app. There's a whole lot of anti-coercion provisions to stop people being coerced into downloading the app. Um, and, you know, according to academics like Graham Greenleaf at UNSW, um, this, is, this has never been seen in Australian legislation to do with privacy. So hopefully this is going to set something of, of, of a precedent where it just it gives privacy the, the respect and the protection that it deserves while still, you know, allowing what we want to happen with the, with the contact tracing. So small businesses who don't make an annual turnover of $3 million aren't legally obliged to keep our personal information private. So without the legislative protection, what exactly can these businesses, businesses do with that info that we share with them for contact, um, for COVID tracing purposes? Yeah, right. So, so you're, you're referring there to the Privacy Act and, and the way when the, when the Privacy Act first came in, it was only government, then it extended to, to companies as well, but only these larger companies. Um, what we need to see is a whole lot of extra protections. And, and currently, yes, companies that don't have a turnover of $3 million don't fall under the Privacy Act. There are other limits. You know, there are certain other provisions that, that, and privacy protections that people have. You know, for instance, what we've just been talking about, the protections that are written into the COVID Safe app law, um, you know, so those sorts of protections still apply to, to anyone, you know, even if you're, you're a small company or you're an individual. Um, but what we need is, is we need a, a much more comprehensive review, which is happening at the moment, and then we need to get much stronger protections for the uses of our personal data. Well, let's hope that review uh, shines a light on what does need to be changed and those changes do take place. Thank you so much, Dr. Sasha, for joining us today. That's right. Thanks, Shami. That was Sasha Molitoris discussing COVID QR, misuse and our digital rights. Stay tuned because after the break, we're going to give you the latest on Sydney's drag king scene and what it means to be a drag king today. We'll be right back after a song played on rotation here at FBI. This is Nayana IZ with TNT. Backchat, your alternative to talkback. 
RuPaul, Priscilla, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. While queens are at the forefront of the drag scene, drag kings don't get the same recognition for their work today. But despite the pandemic's crushing impact on live performance, Sydney's drag kings are now in more demand. Here to explain the budding drag king scene is performer Gabriel Angel. Gabriel, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So what defines a drag king? I think what defines a drag king isn't actually anything that a single person can stipulate. Rather, a drag king is a shared attitude that the patriarchal system, which defines our freedoms, doesn't need to apply to those who call themselves drag kings on stage. So, like, as complicated as that sounds, it means we're free to be whatever without the fear of being told that we're not good enough because we are in whatever iteration you see us is valid. Whether you, like, there are commonalities between us, but all people who I've seen who are drag kings have completely different styles, different ways of dressing, different ways of performing, different ways of being. I love that. I love that so much. So just to help me understand it more and just like initiate me into like the really cool world of drag kings in comparison to drag queens, what are the unique challenges um, drag kings like yourself face when they enter the scene? Well, I would say that historically speaking, we have, we've been around for just as long. I mean, you can't, you can't have one without the other in my opinion. But um, much like people who identify as female have struggled to create more spaces for themselves on stage and in performance and in performance spaces in general, drag kings have struggled to get to the forefront. So comparatively, drag queens are seen more, talked about more, um, made into like capitalist marketing schemes more because people see them as, oh my goodness, what an incredible illusion that has come in front of my eyes this evening. How could this inverted commas man turn into inverted commas a woman? My goodness, black magic. But um, (laughs) when people see... When, what I've heard and what I've experienced personally is when people see drag kings, they're like, oh, you, you drew on a beard with some, with some eyeliner and you stuffed some socks down your pants. That's nice. Where it's like, it's so, it's, they're incredibly different in my mind. Um, and as there are different uh, iterations of feminism, there are different iterations of drag kings. You know, I see it very much in tandem and you seem to love it what's your favorite part of performing as a drag king ah oh i love this um so my favorite part of performing i grew up as a performer i grew up as an actor but my favorite part of performing is you get that rush but also you see so many people in the crowd that are like you in terms of aesthetics but also completely different from you, love what you're doing on stage. You get to feed them, like, a story or a feeling. And they, in our community, especially in Sydney, their, rea- their, their response is really positive. 
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. We're speaking to Sydney drag king Gabriel Angel on drag king history and Sydney's drag king scene. So, Gabriel, being a drag king sounds super fun. You have a lot of passion and I can feel it. Uh, so what have you learnt on the journey so far? I have learnt that you need to be incredible, even as a non-binary performer myself, and as someone who discovered that a bit later in their life, you need to be accepting of yourself and everyone else. You can pigeonhole, especially drag queens, into being quite closed-minded and judgmental, and some of them are, but at the same time, I've learned that this community will support you and uplift you and give you opportunities and be there for you when you're not doing great. Um, But also just in terms of performance, the style changes all the time. The way you do your face will change. The way the kind of numbers that you want to perform will change. So be open to change and be open to the people who are around you. And how are you and other drag kings affected when Sydney first went into lockdown? Isolation will always be difficult for anyone who is an artist in performance space. But the most interesting thing that I saw happen is coming out of isolation when people could get together again. We didn't have monthly events. Um, we didn't have continuous employment. But suddenly, out of nowhere, well, not out of nowhere, but what we saw were two monthly events that started up pretty much as soon as you could go to live events again. So that means you get to see Drag Kings twice a month, every month, plus other here and there um, performances that put Drag Kings on their lineup. I love that. So with that in mind, how can we better support Drag Kings in Sydney? The best way to support Drag Kings in Sydney are to find your local events, such as Sydney Kings at the Vanguard and the Drag Kings at Giant Dwarf, um, and also social media, social media, social media. Um, Please follow us on Instagram. Please like our content. Our content is across platforms. There are Facebook groups. Um, that you can join and also I think nearly all of us are good for a chat and we're happy to answer questions and say hello and share each other's social media information and all that jazz. I love that so much. We'll be sure to share all of those links that you mentioned onto our site or feel free to do that yourself and tag us and we'll retweet it because I feel like you have a a lot more information there than we do. Oh, good. That's all good. Thank you, though. And for people who want to dip their foot in drag, the drag king world, where do you recommend they start? Okay, so uh, I will never discredit the amazingness of the YouTube tutorial. However, um, there aren't many drag king specific YouTube tutorials. So how I started was um, some theater makeup, but also go onto Instagram and look up some of the really big kings. Uh, Land Insider, who won season two of Dragula, is an excellent starting point in terms of shape. Um, I'm actually going to be a part of the next workshop run at the Giant Dwarf by the, um, by the kings. So 
I'll also send you the link for that. But Instagram makeup, pick your favourite song and then just sing it around the house. Do a bit of lip syncing. It doesn't matter whether you can dance or whether you can sing as long as you have fun. So start in your bedroom, move to your living room, do a little mini performance for your housemates and people you trust. And then come on down to the Imperial on Sundays for Lip Sync Heroes because anyone is welcome to perform. Perfect. Perfect advice. Thank you so much for your time, Gabriel. All good. Have a lovely day and thank you so much for having me. You too. That was Sydney Drag King Gabriel Angel talking about how Sydney Drag Kings have progressed during the pandemic. And that's all the time we have on the show this week. Big, massive thank you to our guests, Sasha Molitoris and Gabriel Angel. This episode of Backchat was brought to you by Charles Rushforth, Millie Roberts, Beck Manabog, Sanaa Sheikh and Vanessa Lim. And we'll catch you at 9.30am next Saturday. But before we go, we've got one last song from our Western Sydney boys. This is My City by 1-4 and the Kid Leroy. Language warning on this one. You're listening to Backchat on FBI. Have a great weekend. <laughs>